Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Kevin Rudd, is the former Prime Minister of Australia. He served from 2007 to 2010 and again in 2013. These days, among other things, he's president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. I got to know the Prime Minister a little bit earlier this year when he moderated a panel on which I was a speaker. The panel was for the Independent Commission on Multilateralism, which is putting together a set of policy recommendations for the next Secretary General. Rudd leads that commission, and we kick off with a brief discussion about what it hopes to accomplish before pivoting to a longer conversation about Rudd's upbringing and career as a diplomat in the Australian Foreign Service. Kevin Rudd is a fluent Mandarin speaker, and he discusses how and why he became enthralled with China at a very young age. We discuss some of his first postings as a diplomat, including to China, and why he decided to make the leap from diplomat to politician. This is a great episode. I think you will love it. As always, you can get in touch with me at globaldispatchespodcast.com. Check out our archive, subscribe on iTunes, send me an email. And if you are a regular listener to this podcast, please do consider leaving a review on iTunes. And now here is my conversation with Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, it's 70 years now since we founded the United Nations. And by we, I mean international community, but led by the United States. Going back to the San Francisco Conference of 1945 and the work done prior to that in policy planning in the United States State Department. But 70 years on, the question which we ask ourselves more broadly is... Is the United Nations system today fit for purpose against the demands for global governance for the 21st century? And if not, what can be done to make it more relevant to the demands that we now face? And if that is the case, what can we do in practical terms to bring about those reforms? So the baseline, I think, in all of this is when you look at the big challenges of peace and security around the world today, uh, the reality is the United Nations is missing in action in a number of those critical theatres. Take the recent Iranian nuclear negotiations. The UN was not at the table. Take the nuclear proliferation problem we face on the Korean Peninsula. There are no UN initiatives. Mm-hmm. We see that across a range of um, peace and security issues uh, today. Mm-hmm. And more broadly, whether it's on economic development, sustainable development, or humanitarian intervention, um, the system is showing signs of fracture, and the system is showing signs of uh, emerging irrelevance to core challenges. And the result is that people are just walking around it. And that, I think, creates 
problems long term as we start to see the fracturing also of the wider body of international law which underpins it. And and you were are the one to to lead this process, to lead these conversations. I I really had a, a wonderful time uh, participating uh, in one of those sessions, uh, and it was good to to get to know you a little bit. And I think the purpose of this conversation is to uh, introduce you to to my audience, uh, many of whom, of course, obviously know who you are, but maybe not know exactly where you came from. So, uh, where did you come from? Where where did you grow up? What kind of family were you born into? Uh, planet Earth is the short answer to that. Planet Earth. The, uh, <laughs> Most of us. In Australia. Yeah. <laughs> there are some aliens, I think, at present, <laughs> and perhaps alive in various aspects of U.S. politics, but let's not go there. <laughs> the, um, I think, um, uh, just in terms of my background, I'm a farm kid. I grew up on a share farmer's uh, lot in uh, rural Queensland, which is in northeastern Australia. Um, and went to the local government schools, both um, primary school and high school. Um, and that's where I um, uh, got my start in life. So afterwards, I um, did you kind of have that, at high school. Yeah. Did you have the typical kind of farm kid upbringing? Were you like raising chickens, that sort of thing? No, no, no. Uh, chickens were far too intelligent for us. So we were dealing with c cattle, um, and uh, cattle um, are seriously bovine in their intelligence levels. So uh, we had dairy cattle and we had some beef cattle. But it was an idyllic environment for a kid to grow up in. Um, I had a horse. We had 500 acres to roam around on. And it was all idyllic um, until one day my father was killed in an accident. And that kind of just um, turned my world upside down because that was the end of the farm because we didn't own it. Um, my mother was not deemed qualified to run a farm even though she was perfectly able. And as a result... Uh, we sort of uh, were passed from relative to relative for the subsequent couple of years until my mother got her life back together. How, how old were you when your father died? Uh, Eleven. So uh, um, It's like the age when kids sort of idealize their fathers the most, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, but it's not a unique story, as you know, you know, across America, across the world, lots of people have family tragedies, and I'm... I'm um, no worse off than anyone else who's been through that sort of experience. It does, however, teach you to be resilient, and it does, however, teach you to be um, independent, and it does uh, teach you that um, uh, the only way that you're going to get on in life is through um, serious hard work. Um, and I think that's something I brought out of um, those experiences. And my mother was an extraordinary woman. She retrained as a nurse. Uh, she'd last effectively worked as a nurse during the Second World War, patching up Australian and American servicemen in the Pacific War. Um, and um, she retrained in this is late 60s, early 70s Australia, uh, found herself a job in the local hospital and, um, and basically supported me through the rest of my um, education. Um, and what was that, that education like? Um, you said you went to, to public schools. Um, how did you become, I guess, first interested in, in the world at large? Well, those days, uh, which was uh, well, well before anyone dreamt of the digital revolution, uh, we used these um, old-fashioned things called books and equally old-fashioned things called newspapers. Um, and, this mythical uh, land you speak of, I've not heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, my our youngest son, Marcus, who's 22, uh, just regards them as antique curiosities, but Certainly, the school library uh, at high school, uh, which was only built actually in my last year of school, um, had a reasonable collection. Uh, and I just used to sit there and read and 
begin to understand a, a wonderful world outside. I began to subscribe to the local national newspaper. So if you're growing up in Boise, Idaho, it's a bit it's about as weird as putting in as the town's only subscription to the New York Times, uh, which is what I did, and started reading about the world. Um, and so that for me was was terrific. But it was book based. It was newspaper based. And, uh, are there any particular books? Are there any particular books that that you recall as having a profound impact on your own intellectual development or how you understood the world? Yeah, as a kid in primary school, actually, um, what you would call in the United States elementary school, the um, my mother gave me a book uh, on um, classical archaeology. Uh, my mother, neither my mother nor my father had ever been much past primary school um, in their formal education, but my mother knew the importance of formal education. And so whenever she could uh, find some cash, she used to buy me a book. And I remember getting this book on classical archaeology, which you flip through the customary pages on uh, ancient Egypt, classical uh, Greece, the Roman Empire, and all those buildings look really cool. And then on the very last page, um, there was um, a series of pictures from classical China, uh, the curved roofs of the Forbidden City and um, and similar such uh, temples around um, ancient China. And that really captured my visual imagination and said to me, I would like to learn more about that place, which began my lifelong odyssey in the study of China. Huh. So it was the aesthetic of of uh, the archaeology of classical China that that really piqued your interest. Yeah, because it's so different. I mean, if you um, if you grow up in small town Australia and occasionally visit larger cities, and you you see some of the architectural forms of uh, what might be called classical Greece, classical Rome. You see that around Washington D.C. You see that around the state capitol buildings across the United States. Well, we have those equivalents as well, but you don't have anything like uh, the golden curved roofs of the Forbidden City. You don't have anything as extraordinary. Uh, as the Temple of Heaven, um, and you don't have anything as extraordinary and as remarkable as the Great Wall of China. So these just opened an entire new sort of intellectual universe for for me as a kid. Did you have any interaction with uh, Australians of Chinese descent or, or Chinese immigrants? I mean, is there, uh, or at the time, was there must, much of a, a robust uh, history of migration from China to Australia? No, practically zero. I mean, a bit like the United States, during our own Australian gold rushes in the 1850s through until the 1890s, um, there were uh, some waves of Chinese migration, but that came to a stop once the gold uh, resources were exhausted. And growing up in the town that I did high school in, a little town called Nambour, N-A-M-B-O-U-R, if you're looking on your map, um, the only uh, visible evidence of um, of uh, Chinese folks was uh, the one Chinese restaurant in town, and that was about it. It wasn't until I got to university that I actually met um, people who had actually come recently from China, and that, of course, opened a whole new world to me as well, and the importance of language. Uh, so, you, so, so this experience led you, uh, as you said, to your intellectual odyssey of, of trying to study China and understand China. What was your first experience um, of doing that sort of formally in, in the school setting? Well, I applied successfully to the Australian National University in Canberra, which, um, in the tradition of um, Harvard and Yale, had developed over the post-war period a very strong um, uh, institute specializing in the study of Asia. Uh, and both the study of Asian languages and the study of Asian uh, history as well. 
And so I chose uh, modern Chinese, classical Chinese, and Chinese, Japanese, and Korean history as part of four or five years of formal study. And uh, that was terrific. We had some of the best um, brains in the business teaching us, um, native speakers of the language, uh, experts in classical Chinese uh, who lived and breathed uh, the ancient tongue, poets, uh, and who lived and breathed the Confucian classics, as well as those capable of bringing alive a Chinese historical tradition. In the same way that um, uh, we who have grown up in the West uh, are familiar with our own you know, Western uh, historical tradition from you know, William the Conqueror through uh, the Renaissance and the Reformation and the uh, Age of Discovery, um, the um, settlement in the United States and the, Rep- and the Revolutionary Wars and, and the consequences through until the 19th and 20th century. So this was opening up an entirely different chapter in my mind about how an entirely self-referenced culture and civilization evolved over not just that thousand years, but for the previous uh, 3,000 years as well. So in university, did you have the opportunity to actually go to China? No, because I didn't have um, a penny to bless myself with. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's uh, as we'd say in Australian English, it's hard yakka. Uh, being a uh, uh, being an Australian university student in those days, so the opportunity for travel was difficult, and because Australia is a long way from most places, uh, international airline tickets in those days were just prohibitive. So I didn't have the opportunity to uh, get to China until somewhat later, after I joined the Australian Foreign Service after I'd graduated from university. So is that sort of the reason you joined the the, the Foreign Service? Was uh, you know maybe you get like a ticket out of there for a little bit? Well, once I'd graduated with um, uh, first-class honours in uh, modern Chinese, uh, you then look around in the Australia of the early 1980s and rapidly discover that you're unemployable. (laughs) Well, you didn't want to be an academic, I suppose. No, no, no. I've always had a practical twist uh, to my life, Um, and maybe that's my farm boy experience. I'm not sure, but uh, I enjoy the world of ideas, but I'm equally driven by how you go about translating ideas into reality. And so someone um, came around the university campuses introducing this institution called the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs, our equivalent of your State Department, and said, um, uh, your country needs you. And so I applied, and much to my complete shock and surprise, passed all the entrance exams, and of which there are about four, a series of four exams, until I was eventually selected. And and the rest um, then unfolded from there in terms of diplomatic postings I had both in Europe and then later in China. So what was your first diplomatic posting? Well, as one of the foreign services then, uh, very good speakers of Chinese, uh, that was me. It was natural they would send me to Stockholm. <laughs> uh, so, uh, And that's the story of many people who have worked in the U.S. State Department and foreign ministries around yeah. the world. So I'm is not your... sure what the logic was, but um, <laughs> the uh, Chinese was not widely used in Sweden in the early 80s. Um, my Swedish came along quite nicely, though. So yeah, by the end of the still, posting, I could... still speak a little Swedish nowadays? Jochen Pratlitz is Svenska. But I could uh, basically uh, do a good stand-up imitation of Swedish chef on the uh, on the Muppet show <laughs> by the end of, by the end of being there for two years so is is the role of like a, a junior uh, Australian Foreign Service officer something that of just you know you're you're like the lowest rung on the totem pole I know in like the US Foreign Service the first job you have for like the first two years is just process visa applications uh, that sort of thing what what were you doing in in Sweden 
Well, ours is a little different um, because it's a smaller foreign service, and of course, the U.S. Uh, State Department. So we have to, in fact, multi-skill. Uh, so in our embassy in Stockholm, I was the third secretary, which is a flash way of saying uh, that I'm um, the most junior of the junior woodchucks in the show. Uh, but my jobs were included in political analysis and reporting on what was going on locally, foreign policy developments. This was still the time, the last decade of the Cold War. Um, the relationship between the Nordic countries and the then Soviet Union um, and analyses of um, the role of uh, Norway in particular in global energy supply uh, in uh, gas and uh, and in oil as their fields were being opened up at the time. So I did a lot of work around those um, subjects. Mm -hmm. But because it's a small diplomatic mission, you also get to do some seriously fun stuff because um, I also ran our cultural programs. So I ran an Australian film festival in Stockholm in the uh, in the mid eighties. It was probably like the time of Crocodile Dundee too. This is Australia's cultural height, at least here in the United States in the mid nineteen eighties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh, <laughs> so it was all that period. Yeah, and as what you describe is also the um, the Australian art film circuit as well. So Crocodile Dundee for those who want to enhance their pectorals um, <laughs> and uh, and show people what a, a real knife looks like. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, and yeah, the other stuff in the great, uh, which was produced in the great Australian sort of film innovation of the 80s, 90s, and the first decade of the century as well. So how did you learn that you were to be sent to uh, China? Um, well, in those days, um, a cablegram comes in from Canberra saying Rudd-Posting-Peking. It wasn't even <laughs> called Beijing in those days. <laughs> so in, in the wonderfully antiquated days of cablegrams, where faxes had not really been invented or popularized. Uh, we had ancient telex machines, and then we had um, uh, cablegrams, which were deeply encrypted. Uh, the ambassador in Stockholm walks in one day and says, well, there, my good lad, that's where you're going next. Enjoy it. Goodbye. <laughs> and you must have been so excited, though, right? This was kind of a lifelong dream, I have to imagine. And I was delighted. And so to raise um, uh, my wife and I had um, just been married before we went to Stockholm. And, uh, of course, by that stage, um, uh, she was uh, pregnant with our first uh, child, um, our daughter Jessica. And so we um, uh, toddled back to Canberra in Australia, had the baby, and then um, when the baby was barely two weeks old, uh, started heading towards um, Peking. Um, and Peking in those days, and I'm talking about um, the 1984, uh, was still reasonably backward. Now, there were no Western medical facilities. There were literally one or two Western doctors in town. Um, and as a result, with a little babe, you do kind of just grit your teeth and hope it's all going to work out because um, you're uh, a long way from every, from anywhere. Um, touching down for the first time in, in Peking, I, I guess, what's going through your mind? I mean, it sounds like since you were a young boy, you'd been interested in studying China, and here you are for the first time um, experiencing sort of the the land. What's going through your mind? What are you experiencing? Do you have any, like, particularly resonant memories of that moment? Yeah. Um, in fact, a few months before starting my posting, um, uh, we had um, been in Hong Kong and um, brushing up on my Chinese again, having acquired quite reasonable Swedish, and my Chinese haven't become rusty. The, um, the Australian mission decided it would be a, a jolly good thing if I uh, went and uh, did a reconnaissance mission to Beijing to prepare uh, for 
my posting there and whatever we would need to bring by way of family supplies. So my first visit to um, Peking was in fact of April of 1984 when I took the train uh, from uh, Kowloon Station in Hong Kong all the way to Peking over two and a half days. And over two and a half days sharing a compartment with three members of the People's Liberation Army uh, and riding what was called soft class, which meant that you had a, sort of a mattress to sleep on. Uh, it was kind of fun because I'd never met a foreign barbarian before. I was it. Um, and secondly, uh, a foreign barbarian who spoke reasonable Chinese, so they automatically conclude that you're a spy. And then, uh, And then thirdly, staring out the window for two days and never passing a single scene in the countryside in China without seeing people for two days. Yeah, 1.1 billion people in those days, 1.2 uh, billion people. Uh, and let me tell you, when you actually see them in large numbers spread right across uh, rural China and the country's heartland, it, um, it's a mind-boggling experience. Uh, so what, what kind of jobs were you doing as a, a diplomat, as an Australian diplomat to China? What was the nature of um, Australia's interests in China at, at the time in, in the mid-1980s? Yeah, the really interesting thing about the two countries back then is in when I arrived in China, the Australian economy was about the same aggregate size in <clears throat> gross domestic product terms as the Chinese economy. Think about that in terms of a country then of 20 million people against a country of 1.2 billion. And so, um, and when we look at what's happened over the intervening 30 uh, years or more, um, where China is now the second largest economy in the world and closing rapidly on the United States, this has been an extraordinary period of change. Our national interests in those days were expanding the economic relationship engaging with the Chinese on political and security questions, particularly as they related to you know, the hardy perennial of East Asian politics, which is uh, the Korean Peninsula, um, and the problems that we had uh, with the North Koreans in those days. Um, and my one of my jobs in the mission was to be the liaison point between the Australian government and the North Korean government through our respective embassies in Beijing. So that was um, kind of interesting. Mr. Kim and myself meeting every second Tuesday for a cup of tea, discussing the depths of the Australia-North Korea relationship. It takes us about 15 minutes, and that was about it. That was – you with with uh, Kim Il-sung himself? Uh, no, 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 no. Not no, that okay. Kim Il-sung. Okay. This, is, this is one of the ubiquitous Mr. Kim. Ah, uh, okay, okay. I, uh, who was um, my equivalent and counterpart of the North Korean embassy in Beijing. Had you ever met so, uh, Kim Il-sung in, in, that, in that period? No, no. I wasn't able to travel to China, sorry, to North Korea at, at that time. I have traveled to North Korea a couple of times, but I've never met the senior leadership. I was um, just too junior for that. But having been to Pyongyang a couple of times uh, in the early part of um, the 21st century, um, I've got to say it was like stepping back into the China of what I'd read about in my history texts as the Chinese Cultural Revolution period in modern Chinese history. Ex extraordinary mass propaganda movements, extraordinary mass mobilizations of people, um, and of course, dirt poor. Uh, in your time in China, did you? I mean, you were there in the the Deng Xiaoping uh, era. Had you? Did you ever have the opportunity to meet him face to face? And and any sort of particularly memorable conversations? If so. Um, Deng Xiaoping, because I was first secretary uh, in the embassy at the time, I had no particular seniority. 
And so certainly when our then Australian Prime Minister visited the country, um, Prime Minister Hawke, I was part of the uh, touring party organising uh, his um, meetings uh, in Beijing and also in China's provinces. So no, I didn't get to meet uh, Deng Xiaoping, um, but I did um, get to sit in on his meetings with the Party General Secretary Hu Yaobang and then Chinese Premier Zhang Ziyang. And so watching those sorts of deliberations up close between these large, larger-than-life figures in modern Chinese history was a unique opportunity. I guess, did you have a sense at the time, or were there any particular moments um, or, or stories that you might share that gave you a sense that China is just so rapidly on the, the ascent? Because this is like, you know, the, the mid-1980s, um, obviously before uh, things really turned up the gear after the, the turn of the century. Uh, but did you have a sense back then that, that things were really starting to turn around? I think the time when I saw that most was um, when I travelled back to China in the late 80s. In the early 80s, um, a lot of the policy, a lot of the changes were in fact policy-based changes. There was not a lot of external evidence of them filtering through to the broad society and the economy by that stage. And so you had major reform documents on the reform of agriculture, on the reform of industry, uh, major reform documents on the beginnings of the reform of the financial sector. Um, but the first time I noticed that uh, things were seriously opening up was um, by the time we get to the late 80s and I was traveling back to China, no longer based in the Australian embassy. And for the first time, I started to see uh, what probably in the United States you call Christmas lights, uh, what we in Australia would call the fairy lights, so little lights wrapped around uh, trees and uh, outside the awnings of stores. And then I remember seeing the first neon lights because there were no neons uh, in China before then. And suddenly there was the beginning of this color explosion in your eyes. And uh, that was remarkable because China up until then had been a combination of gray, blue, or green. <laughs> that, that was the palette. <laughs> and, okay. and then suddenly, yeah. bang, you saw this... Um, color-based dynamism explode. And it's certainly if you visit downtown Shanghai these days or Beijing, the place is a riot of color. Well, that's interesting. So that's, again, the aesthetic of China that at once when you're a child uh, inspired you to become interested in China, again, is what uh, sort of tipped you off that things were changing is is the aesthetic of, of the place. Um, well, again, it's um, an external manifestation of um, a sort of internally... Uh, driven and determined developments. Certainly by the time you get to the 90s, you start to see uh, the beginnings of China really going out into the world in trade and investment activity, and the numbers really start to become very impressive during Jiang Zemin's period running the country. Uh, and then we get into the first decade of the 21st century, where the numbers continue to generate, not without price. The biggest price that you see, of course, is and the level of environmental despoilation across the country. And that's now, of course, in 2015-16 is what the government is trying to wrestle with. Um, so I, in the last few minutes, I'd love to learn um, how you came from being a diplomat to wanting to seek uh, elected office. Uh, what, what inspired that change? When I returned uh, to the Australian Foreign Service after spending a few years in Beijing, I was put into... Um, the policy planning staff of the Australian Foreign Service. Planning staff has a great history in the State Department as well. These are the folks who, um, back in the day, uh, worked out what uh, the UN could and should look like, what the Bretton Woods institutions could and should look like, what the Marshall Plan could and should be. 
Uh, and so uh, while our operation was much smaller, it was a great position to be in to think beyond the horizon. But I remember doing this extensive uh, research paper on the impact of Mikhail Gorbachev um, and uh, Glasnost and Perestroika on what would then add up to be Soviet uh, policy uh, in the Soviet Far East and, and in the Asia-Pacific region. I spent about three months on this, submitted to, to uh, the then Australian Foreign Minister, and then two weeks later uh, it came back uh, with the following annotation, tick, good work, full stop. And I had... I had um, I had one, what you describe as one of those uh, WTF moments, <laughs> which is, uh, which is, what am I doing here? <laughs> am I presenting? I'm being employed, I thought, as kind of a uh, paid public policy voyeur on the world, uh, describing events, uh, but not actually acting within events. So that caused me to change course. And I found myself applying for jobs both in the corporate sector but then to take a big lurch back to my home state of Queensland to apply out of the blue for a job uh, as the uh, chief of staff to the leader of the uh, parliamentary Labour Party uh, in my home state of Queensland. And that's what began me on a political path. So you become like a, a, sta- a state uh, political uh, appointee, right? So you, started, started, you went from foreign politics to, to very domestic politics, I have to, have to imagine. Yeah, I suppose the trajectory is a bit like this, you know, from farm... Uh, to university, uh, <laughs> off, to, off to the Foreign Service, China, the world, back, uh, planning staff, uh, not much interested in that, uh, lurch into um, Australian state politics, which is not dissimilar to state politics in the United States of America. Uh, we have state premiers, you call them governors, um, and the states are responsible under the Constitution in Australia for the delivery of a whole lot of key services in education, health, uh, housing, uh, employment, as well as uh, in the areas of economic development. So I did that for several years, and then uh, threw my uh, threw my hand up for uh, what we would call pre-selection, what you would call the party primary uh, for the Australian Labor Party in a federal seat in the Australian Parliament, to which I was elected uh, in 1998. And and the rest is history. Um... <laughs> and the rest is kind of what I've been doing since then in federal Absolutely. politics as foreign minister, prime minister, and now a resident of the United States for the last couple of years, having spent um, a year or so at the Harvard Kennedy School working on U.S.-China relations, and um, now president of the Asia Society Policy Institute here in New York, where and, I live. And, and so uh, what's next? Any, any um, uh, issues, anything else you want to plug before we go in terms of what you're working on at the Asia Society? Well, we're working on a, a number of uh, large projects at the Asia Society, one of which is how do we help develop uh, a new long-term uh, institutional arrangement in East Asia and the West Pacific based on concepts of common security, uh, not just adversarial security, which is currently the case exclusively through uh, US alliance structures and those opposed to them, are primarily China. Um, and so we call this uh, the development of the concept of an Asia-Pacific community. It's not utopian. It's basically how do you set up a parallel set of arrangements which encourage all the states in the region to talk about common security challenges and to act in the cause of common security as opposed to exclusively just preparing to blow each other's head off. Um, so um, that's one of the things we're working on. But the UN stuff for me is really important, in particular, coming up with a blueprint for the long-term survivability of the United Nations system. That's something I care about passionately, not because I believe it's perfect, but I do believe 
that um, if we turn around in uh, 10, 20, 30 years' time and see that, in fact, the UN has died the death of a thousand cuts, to use a dreadful Chinese analogy, and has just slowly sunk beneath the waves, I think we'll then turn around and say, how the hell did we allow that to happen? And what's the world like in the absence of any uh, institution of effective global political governance? Um, so that for me is a sense of mission as well. And uh, you and me both, sir. Uh, well, I have to let you go, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you for speaking with me and good luck with everything. And again, I, I had a great pleasure meeting you a couple months ago at the uh, ICM conference. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on uh, this uh, program, this podcast. It's been uh, great talking to you and, um, and to your listeners uh, across um, uh, a pretty extraordinary country, the United States of America. Yeah, we have, we have a few in Australia too. <laughs> and across the world. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Big thank you to Kevin Rudd. You know, re-listening to this episode, I didn't realize how many subtle jokes that he inserted into his commentary. So well done, sir. Um, one thing I did not ask uh, Kevin is whether or not he intends to run for UN Secretary General. You know, there's a lot of rumors milling about the UN system that he might step into the race. But as recently as the day before our interview, I saw an interview that he gave to some media outlet, which strongly suggested that he was not uh, going to run. He said something along the lines of, last time I checked, my name isn't Kevin Rudovich, suggesting that he thinks it is almost certainly going to go to someone from Eastern Europe. Uh, but who knows? And if that changes, this will become part of the UN Secretary General candidate series. But for now, it is just a straight up regular Global Dispatches podcast interview. I hope you loved it. This is what we're all about here at Global Dispatches, have these kind of in-depth conversations. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.